Thanks so much, Michael. Let's pray. Father, on this Father's Day, we want to say, first of all, thank you for your fatherly love and care for us, the way you provide for us, protect us, lead us, and guide us. And Father, thank you for all the fathers you've gifted us with. Thank you for all the wonderful dads at Current. Lord, would you bless them today and in the, in the year to come. And Father, as we look, turn now to your word, would you please give us your spirit to shape us more into the likeness of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm David. I'm excited to continue this series in the book of Esther with you, a series we're calling For Such a Time as This. I'm excited because this is just an incredibly relevant book for our lives, even though it was written thousands of years ago. And here's the question we're asking today. Where do you go for your sense of identity in times of adversity? Where do you find your identity? What grounds you? What guides you? Uh, where do you find your identity in times of adversity? Uh, the fact of the matter is we're all in varying degrees going through adversity right now. I mean, just take shelter in place alone by way of example. Cindy and I have a little bit of a social experiment going on right now. We have this really busy traffic intersection right next to us. And we found that the longer shelter in place goes on, the more intense road rage starts to happen over there. We're just hearing honks and even people yelling at each other. It's really interesting how the longer things go, I mean, people are just starting to come undone a little bit. Look, if we're not grounded in times of adversity, uh, we're in trouble. Or just take the economy as an example. Some of you have lost your jobs. We're praying for you. Some of you have, have jobs that are kind of being threatened right now. And then you think about all the social unrest and the social injustice in our society and the adver adversity there. Where do you find your sense of identity in the midst of adversity? Uh, what we're going to see in this text today is not only how easy it is to draw our sense of identity in things that are detrimental to us and detrimental to others, but also how it's not so clear-cut to ground ourselves in God, which if we're followers of Jesus, know to be the only place that we can find unconditional love. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the verses, uh, first 12 verses. And here we're going to see portraits of three people and where they draw their sense of identity in the midst of adversity. And I believe, again, even though the story is thousands of years old, we will see our story in theirs. Uh, we're picking up where we left off last week. Uh, last week, as we looked at chapter one, King Xerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, threw this huge 180-day party celebrating the fact that he ruled over 127 provinces and it all culminated with him in a drunken stupor summoning Queen Vashti to be put on display, her beauty put on display before all the drunken masses and she refused. And King Xerxes got mad and he deposed of her. Uh, that's where we pick up in chapter two. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women in the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king and he followed it. 
Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfume and cosmetics. Isn't this an interesting story that's in the Bible? It's scandalous. And I think it's meant to shock us a little bit, which we'll consider as we go. But here we see portraits of three people and where they draw their sense of identity in the midst of adversity. The first person mentioned that we want to consider is King Xerxes. Now, King Xerxes is facing adversity, even though none of us have sympathy for him. I mean, this guy was just a cruel dude. I mean, just making life miserable for people and bringing about all this trouble that he's facing upon himself. So it's not like we have sympathy towards him. Still, there's a portrait of a man drawing his sense of identity in different places where we can even see ourselves in. So first, we see a portrait of a man who is shaped by his wounds. He's pouting here. We're not told all the events that are actually going on right now in, in the kingdom, but it's captured in that little word later. Later on, we're picking up again from last week, chapter one, uh, and the events of that party that happened over 180 days. Well, it turns out, looking at a timestamp later in chapter two and a timestamp in chapter one, that these events of chapter two are picking up four years after chapter one. It's been four years since that party and, and all that went, went down with Queen Vashti. Four years. And a lot had happened in the Persian Empire in that time. In fact, I'm a little bit of a, I like reading about military history. And as soon as I got into the study of, of Esther uh, last week, I, and I saw that these events of chapter one happened uh, around 483 BC, I was immediately like, wow, that's right around the events of the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, the Battle of Thermopylae is when the 300 Spartans famously stood up against all the, the multitude of Persians, the, the same King Xerxes' army that were attacking them, and they suffered a great symbolical uh, defeat, symbolic defeat there against those Spartans, which ended up turning the tide of the advancement of the Persian Empire. So King Xerxes is really sulking because here he was four years before just, you know, partying it up celebrating how his empire is so vast, but now in the midst of that time, he has suffered this defeat and now it was all threatened. But what's more, we're told, is he's remembering 
Queen Vashti's pouting over her. But let me ask you this. Do you think this was a guy who was remembering, you know, longing, missing the relational connection that he had with Queen Vashti? Or that he was remorseful about his actions and what he had done to her and the harm he had caused? No way. In fact, our text even shows us this. It says, he remembered Vashti and what she had done. Meaning four years later, and this dude was still seething that someone had dared, spoken out against him, had gone against him. He was still nursing his wounds. And you know, how many of us have been there? How many of us, when we've experienced failure or someone going against us, uh, we nurse it? And we replay the story over and over again in our minds. How many of us are nursing wounds right now because of a difficulty or a setback or things people have said about us? What can easily happen is these things begin to form a part of our identity. We, we become a wounded soul. I'm, I'm, I'm wounded and I just need people to know it. Or I just need to, to make sure that that person is repaid. But according to the Bible, we live from the glory of God, not from the glory of self. And what King Xerxes is doing is what we can easily do. He's living life as if the world revolves around him. We can easily live as the world revolves around us. But if we do so, it can easily lead to our own misery. What Xerxes is not doing, instead of repenting and turning to God, he goes instead to get advice in order to paper over the pain. So we see not only was King Xerxes shaped by his wounds, but we also see that he was controlled by the opinions of others. His advisors tell him to round up women from all the provinces as a sort of beauty contest, although it's not really a beauty contest. Don't think American Idol here. I mean, this was terrible. This was forced. This was exploitative. And not just for the women, but for the families and, and, and the communities the historian Josephus actually tells us that King Xerxes at this time rounded up 400 women in total. This is a guy who needed God, not another woman, not another form of power. But you know, we, like the advisors here, uh, tell each other this all the time. Our culture tells us this all the time. Oh, it didn't work out for you with that boyfriend or girlfriend? Oh, you know what you need? You just need to get another boyfriend or girlfriend. Or, oh, it didn't work out for that job. You know what you do? You, you just need to get another job. Now, look, I'm not trying to knock this entirely, but fundamentally, underneath it all, the Bible is teaching us that we can't just look for our sense of identity in temporary thing after temporary thing. What we need to ultimately do is find our identity in the only one who can ultimately ground us, whose love will never be taken away from us and will only ever be unconditional towards us. In King Xerxes, we see a man shaped by his wounds. We see a man controlled by the opinion of others. And we see a man driven by appetite. Imagine if you were one of the advisors talking to King Xerxes in this moment. Would you have said to them, you know, King Xerxes, you should just round up all the women. Uh, you know what? Just, just you do you. Lean into King Xerxes being King Xerxes. Be yourself. I mean, there's just no way. And yet, these are slogans that we'll tell each other, or our culture tells us all the time. You do you. Be yourself. But we can see in a context like this that maybe that's not always the best of advice. 
Uh, these are slogans we always hear. It's interesting, you know, as I was preparing this message, I didn't even have to go out looking for it to see these slogans, but our, all our advertisements have these, these uh, slogans with them. You do you, be yourself. You know, I, I saw a, a drink company say such thing. I saw a, um, a video game, of all things, say such thing, and a cosmetic company, which is really interesting. You do you, the advertisement said, be yourself. And yet, and, and it's ironic in the sense of these companies are saying, hey, be yourself, but be yourself provided you're buying into us and our product. What King Xerxes is doing here, of course, is he's self-medicating. He's not looking to love and care for a woman, to have a, a, a relationship that will last, Look, but he's looking to use women. He's self-medicating through his carnal appetite. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we recognize that there's a part of us, there's there's plenty of us that, you know what, there, there is good and we have great desires. And yet at the same time, there's plenty of ourselves that, that isn't so good and is not good or helpful desires. Look, we got to be careful because we need to understand which is good and which is which is not. But how do we do so? How do we know which is which? I think we 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 need to turn ultimately to the scriptures because the scriptures are not so naive about this. The the Bible teaches on the one hand, it shows us the dignity and beauty of humankind. Well, on the other hand, it doesn't shy from highlighting the brokenness and the sinfulness of humankind. King Xerxes represents a false self that God doesn't intend for us. An identity that is grounded in and at the mercy of the whims of external circumstances, the opinion of others, and selfish desires. It's no wonder then that King Xerxes, who really had more power, success, wealth than any of us could even dream of, was in the end miserable and making life for others miserable as well. Well, in contrast to King Xerxes are the portraits of Mordecai and Esther. First, let's focus on Mordecai. Uh, a description of, of him is listed out in verses five through six. And before I read it, I want to just say that it is the practice, it was the practice in ancient Hebrew writing to use pride of place, meaning whenever they kind of wrote out a list of, of description, they would always put what they thought the most important thing first. So with that in mind, let's read the description of Mordecai. Verse five says, now there was in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. What the author of Esther is doing here is giving us a glimpse into what's most important about these two main characters of the book as he's introducing them. He's setting up the story and showing that the odds are stacked against them, that they're in the midst of these terribly hard circumstances. But the first thing that's called out about Mordecai is that he was a Jew, or namely, that he was a child of God. This is hearkening back to the first promise God ever gave to his people through Abraham. That This promise essentially said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I want to set you apart. Your lives will be set apart. That the way you live, the actions you do, and the actions you, you purposely do not do will distinguish you as mine among many. And the author of the book of Esther is showing through Mordecai, in stark contrast to King Xerxes, that first of all, our identity needs to start with God. 
For those who are followers of God, followers of Jesus, God and his ways are our true north. They're our compass. It doesn't matter what culture we find ourselves, whether it's 5th century Persia or 21st century Silicon Valley and everything in between. There will always be wonderful things that the Bible commends about a given culture, even as there will be plenty of things that the Bible says, no, no, these are not God's ways. The question is, do you stand apart? If you're a follower of God, do you stand apart? And I'm not just talking necessarily in a confrontational way but in a clear way that those around you know who you are and whose you are. But not only must our identity start with God, our identity must be sustained in God. The author continues his introduction of Mordecai by saying, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive by Jehoiakim, king of Judah. We talked about this last week, but the Jews had been taken into captivity. They'd been captured originally by the Babylonians. Uh, The Jews had been uh, turning away from God for years and years, and God sent prophet after prophet saying, hey, turn back to me. Stop following and worshiping these other gods. Stop committing these gross acts of injustice among your own people and turn back to me. Well, they didn't listen, and finally God removed his favor from them and allowed them to be conquered and taken into exile first by the Babylonians, who were then conquered themselves by the Persians. Well, if you look at the surrounding books of the book of Esther, in Nehemiah and Ezra in particular, you will see that there was actually a benevolent king before King Xerxes that started to allow some of the exiles to return. And so exiles had been returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, rebuild their culture. But not all of the Jews went back. Some of them remained, and Mordecai remained in Susa. And we're told it's likely because he he had a high-level position, uh, at least in part. Maybe that's the reason why he stayed. Uh, We know throughout the the rest of the story that he had uh, access to the royal court, so maybe it was because he had a high-level position that he stayed. But whatever the, the case, he remained in a culture that wasn't his own and, in fact, was hostile towards his faith and practice following God. And it seems clear the author is saying his identity in the Lord sustained him through all of that. This is what the church of Christ is called to do. Listen, how, uh, listen to how the apostle Peter used similar language, uh, not only to encourage the early church and all this, but also the, the church today. Here's what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. That's saying that the Christian life is one of a sojourner, that in a sense we are foreigners and exiles in this life as we long for our true heavenly home to come. But we have to, in the meantime, make our way through culturally, morally, spiritually ambiguous situations, doing our best to follow the Lord. And what Peter is saying in the midst of all of this is abstain from sinful desires. Don't give in to the culture that wage against your soul. He's saying, watch your identity. Your identity is not in here and now, but it's in the home to come, the life to come. We must start with our identity in the Lord. We must be sustained by our identity in the Lord. That's Mordecai. Now, finally, let's look at Esther. Uh, There's Esther, whom I just love here. 
I mean, just to be real, her situation here is absolutely terrible. But in a sense, I just love the story because it's so real and raw and messy. First, let's notice that she's the only person here who's given two names. We're told she had two names. Verse 7 says, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So she has two names. First, she had the Hebrew name Hadassah, which really represents the word righteousness. And then she also had the name, of course, Esther, which was her Babylonian name, which was a name derived from the pagan goddess Ishtar. So right off the bat, we're shown that Esther has these conflicting identities. She's a Jewish orphan uh, uh, captive who was born and raised in a new land and culture. She has a name from that past, an identity that's brought into her present, even as she has a name and identity from the culture that she's in now. And then, of course, we have to take into account that she she was a concubine. You know, even though it happened forcibly, there's actually a lot of people who will take aim at Esther, and for that matter, Mordecai at this. I mean, they'll say things like, what's going on here? Why didn't they push back? Why didn't they refuse and stand up to such evil? Which, in, in, in some ways, is a founded critique. For instance, you have the book of Daniel, which is written about another guy in captivity in, in the Babylonian Empire who was taken forcibly into the king courts then, and, and Daniel at that time stood up to the king and said, you know what? I'm not going to eat foods that you're forcing upon me because they're unclean and I'm going to make this decision unto the Lord. And the Lord in turn blessed Daniel for that decision. Esther seems to be going with the flow. Mordecai seems to be going with the flow. Is is that right? And then there's this question about why Mordecai had had Esther not reveal her nationality and family background. Was that the right thing to do? Jesus called all his followers to be light. At one point, he famously said, you are the light of the world. You can't put a light under a bowl. No, you you put the light on its stand. And yet, how many of us can actually relate to what Esther is facing and the struggle here? How many Christians listening right now have trouble revealing that they follow Jesus, say, in the workplace? And that's just risking maybe a little bit of our reputation, maybe a relationship, when for Esther it would have been potentially risking her life. So it's easier to see where Esther's coming from. Esther's example here shows us that it's not always easy, even as a follower of God, to find and ground our identity in the Lord. Was Esther perfect here? No. But you know what the the lesson here is? You know what I love about God's word and I love about here in the book of Esther is it's not shying away from the ugly, the pain, the the messy. That's great news because our lives are messy with lots of pain and and sometimes ugliness. The point here, and, and don't miss this, is that it's not that you and I have to clean up our lives in order for God to love us, but that God already loves us. He already loves you, even as he knows knows everything about you. And what's more is he wants to use you to love others. This is the story of Esther and what it's all about. God saving an entire people through a broken, flawed, and yes, sinful person. And that's great news, friends, because we are broken 
flawed and sinful. I think there are at least three invitations here for us from this, uh, from chapter two, verse the first 12 verses. Uh, three lessons for us to put our hope, trust, and identity in the Lord, the one in whom, who will only ever love us unconditionally and whose love will never be taken away. There's three invitations, it seems to me, here. The first is to be honest. Now, as we read this story, it's really clear that we can see the internal struggles and flaws of each of the characters. I mean, it's, it's just presented so clearly to us. And it feels to me as if it's as if God, through his word, is saying, is inviting us to see that he, what he sees. And that he sees this in our own lives, the internal struggles and flaws that we have, and yet chooses to love and care for us. He sees clearly how we are shaped more by our wounds than we care to admit, that we are controlled by our opinions, driven by our appetites and our desire for personal glory more than we care to admit, and yet loves us. And I think there's an invitation here to just come along and say, alongside him and say, you know what, yeah, that's me. I think the first invitation here is to be honest. I think the second invitation is to be humble. It's been said that, that the difference between a Christian and someone who doesn't identify as Christian is not that they are you know, a better person or they live a better life. It's that the Christian goes to God regularly saying, God, forgive me, I've, I've messed up again. I, I see how sinful I am. In fact, the Christian probably, as life goes on, sees more and more clearly how we miss the mark and we need God's help, forgiveness as we turn back to him. It's saying, yes, I need you, God, and I, because I recognize that I hurt others in ways that I know about and in ways that I don't know about. Would you lead me in the way everlasting? So there's invitations here to be uh, honest, humble, and then third, there's an invitation to be hopeful. Esther 2 is not the end of the story, which is such good news because we just imagine the story just ended here in chapter 2, verse 12. Oh, that'd be terrible. Esther 2 is setting up the end of the book, and that is when God will ultimately deliver his people through a broken, sinful, flawed person. But you know what? Even the book of Esther is not the end of the story. Even the book of Esther is setting up the greater story and greater deliverance that God had in store for all people when he sent his son to, to die, not just for a people group, but for all people who would turn to him by faith. And you know, when you know about 500 years later, when Jesus would come into this world, he would live the perfect life. He was never... He was never controlled by the opinions of others. He was never driven by appetite. He never had issue in any of these ways, but he only ever looked to his source of identity in his heavenly father, not in some self-righteous way, you know, look at me, but always in a way that just so identified with even the least of these, always laying down his life for the sake of others, even when he faced the worst of any adversity that we couldn't even imagine. Even as he hung on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, he was looking to take care of the needs of those around him. That's Jesus. That's who came to deliver all of us, that when we put our faith in him, we could receive the forgiveness of sins and a restored relationship with him. In fact, if you're here today and you've never received Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity even now to receive Jesus. Great promise, the gospel or good news of the scriptures is that to all who receive him, to all who believe on his name, God gives the right to become children of his.
And you could do that now. In fact, you could even, in prayer, use the template that we just gave. Starting out in a prayer by being honest, saying, God, you know, I recognize that I'm sinful in ways that I can see, but even in ways that I don't see, that I hurt others, I, I hurt myself, and, and really I hurt you. So I just want to start by saying, yes, that's me. And then being humble and saying, and, and I need your help. I want to receive today the forgiveness of sins that you offered so freely through the death of your son on the cross. And the life that he gives. And, and I want to be hopeful. I want to place my hope in you as I, as I want you to lead me from this day forward. Amen. And if you said that prayer or if that resonates with you, you made that decision, I, we'd love for you to let us know so we can come alongside you and be a support to you in any way, give you a resource to, to be a help to you. And then to those of you who are followers of Jesus, how can you find your identity in the Lord today? And in what ways or areas of, of life might you be turning to apart from him? And how can you be honest, humble, and hopeful? in it all. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the story of Esther, a story of someone who was so deeply flawed and broken and trying to navigate really challenging circumstances. Thank you for just how your grace and love shines through for people like that, because that's, that's us. Lord, forgive us for how we place our identity in things that are detrimental to ourselves and others, and help us place our identity ultimately in you, who alone loves unconditionally. And finally, like Esther, would you please help us join you as agents of hope, love, and renewal, especially in these times that we're in now. We ask for your help in all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's pass things back over to Chris to lead us in song and worship.